Good evening, this is Quintus Curtius, and welcome back to Fortress of the Mind. And in this podcast, we're going to be talking a little bit more about a subject that I've previously written about and discussed in podcasts, and this is the plutocratic insurgency, the plutocratic insurgency. A couple days ago, I published another article on my website about the plutocratic insurgency, and this was the second article I've published about this subject. And I was talking about two additional articles that appeared on the Small Wars Journal website by Dr. Robert Bunker and his presumed spouse, Pamela Bunker. I assume that they're husband and wife. Um, And these two articles treated two additional facets of the plutocratic insurgency that we've previously discussed. So if you have not yet read this article, you should really go back and read it. It was published on August 13th, two days ago. And the two subjects that are talked about in the article are the, the, the rise of these techno-palaces of the global elites and also the continuing confiscation of public spaces in favor of private actors, private actors, private corporate actors. So this is a very important subject, and as you can tell, I've spent some time on it because I think it it allows us to understand so much of what we see in the news and what is going on behind the headlines. Because the contribution that Dr. Bunker has made to the debate is he's identified the concentration of wealth in the hands of a few as a form of insurgency warfare. And as far as I know, no one else has done that. No one else has actually made that leap. There are, there are authors out there who have talked about the concentration of wealth. They've talked about how it's destabilizing. They've talked about how it's bad. They've talked about how pernicious it is. But no one has really taken that next step, that inevitable step, which is to say that the concentration of wealth in the hands of the global elite, these extra-sovereign actors that he calls them, people that have no allegiance to any sovereignty, no allegiance to any national sovereignty. They just sort of move and around the world, just immune from any sort of public responsibility, any sort of duties of citizenship, any duties to the societies within which they parasitically operate. These are extra-sovereign actors, and it's a form of warfare. It's a form of warfare waged against the people of the countries in which they operate because what they're doing is they're stealing money, they're stealing resources from the pockets of the population and they're putting it in their own coffers. And the public suffers. This is the reason why the infrastructure, or one of the reasons why the infrastructure in the U.S. is in decline. This is one of the reasons why the middle class has been uh, essentially gutted in the past 40 years. And it's one of the major reasons why it's so difficult for people now to obtain the very basic necessities that allow them to get on with their lives. It's so hard to make ends meet. It's difficult to find affordable health care. It's difficult if you're a student to get out of student loan debt in a bankruptcy filing. All of these things are connected. All of these things are part of the same thing. And It is one of the major goals of the plutocratic insurgency is to operate in in the shadows. They don't want you to know what's going on. They don't want you to know what they're doing. They don't want to have any sense of accountability. And so that's why I think 
that it's so important for me to disseminate and, and popularize the work that um, that Dr. Robert Bunker has done at the U.S. Army War College because I think it's important work. I think it's very, very important work, and I hope that you'll read my article, which contains links to his original article and articles on the Small Wars Journal website. So you can really begin to do your own investigation because don't take my word for it. Don't take anyone else's word for it. Do your own research. Do your own homework. And when you study history, when you see how history is in many ways economically, it's a story of of um, uh, wealth concentrating and then disseminating, concentrating and disseminating, um, then you'll understand how much of what we see in the headlines is explainable by the actions of these extra-sovereign actors. So let's first talk about the techno-palaces of the global elites. Techno-palaces of the global elites. And the theme of this subject is Dr. Bunker is identifying there is a, a, a building and construction boom going on right now for the extra-sovereign individuals, the plutocrats, to lead lives of leisure, isolation, and insulation. Now, you might be thinking, oh, what's the big deal? What's the big deal? It's just another condo. It's just another fancy house. It's just another habitation. And if you think this, you, you would be wrong. You would be wrong because these techno palaces go far beyond even the chateau of yesteryear, of medieval France, maybe. These are not just residences. These are literally castles in the sky. They're literally castles in the sky. They're fortified. They are ways that the plutocrats can remove themselves physically, not just because they've already won the battle of removing themselves financially and economically from responsibility. Now they want to physically remove themselves from the societies in which they operate, so you can't see them, so that you can't point the fingers, that you don't know what's going on. So let's talk a little bit about that. Bunker says there are only about 40,000 extra-sovereign individuals who can afford the $10 million-plus uh, price of the units in the, most, in the more prestigious of these residential towers. And he means these needle towers, other postmodernist architectural forms that provide full amenities and are guarded 24 hours by private security personnel. And these new urban residences began being completed around 2013-14 and are now spreading to key global city hubs. And these residences are likely being purchased due to a combination of factors, including their locations to major global financial centers, luxury appointments, high-technology fields, secure nature, and the networking environments they provide to the world's richest families for business facilitation and marriage alliances between their offspring. And it's incredible when you really think about this. No one has thought of this. No one has probed into this. No one is discussing this. And it turns out that these techno-palaces are, uh, the, the, these these habitations are marketed to only about 40,000 people, which comprise 0.00005% of the world's 7.5 billion population. Okay, 
and this represents a component of the term dark globalization. It represents a component of the dark globalization. The expectation is that now that these techno palaces are becoming the de facto global elite residences in New York City, they'll begin to emerge across the globe in its major financial centers. This is already seemingly the case with their construction being mimicked in a number of other major financial cities worldwide, such as Sydney, Hong Kong, and Tokyo, and with more sensible height limits, of course, placed on them in London. One architect interviewed in 2016 already noted that in the United States, San Francisco, Miami, and Boston already have mini-needle towers underway, and other cities such, such as Seattle and Atlanta will follow. And this is the key paragraph here that I want to read to you from Bunker's article. And he says, following that bad alien colonization storyline, the projection is that in the coming decades, the new extra-sovereign masters of humanity will raise up many more such gleaming towers to look down from as they further separate themselves from the rest of us. Like puppet masters, these scions of predatory capitalism are engaged in a sustained global insurgent campaign that is neither understood nor recognized by lesser political elites, the middle strata, or the masses. Instead, we simply marvel at the pretty new shimmering needle-like structures arising in our cities, quite blissfully unaware of the dystopian socioeconomic futures that they represent for our children and our children's children. And you know, I'm reminded of the future of the world painted by H.G. Wells in one of his lesser known novels, which was When the Sleeper Wakes, When the Sleeper Wakes. And he, in one of the, I wrote an article about this last year. You can find it on my website. And it's a dystopian novel which imagines a future of rampant capitalism, rampant commercial capitalism gone crazy. And the world is controlled just the way things seem to be developing now, where you've got a, a small global minority running the show, and you've got the rest of humanity spread out in squalor and unrelenting and unmitigated depravity. So this is the this is the techno this is the element of the plutocratic insurgency identified as the techno palaces of the global elites. Now let's move on to the second the second feature of the continuing plutocratic insurgency and this is the something that's very very sinister. Um, all of this is sinister but this is something again which is going on totally under the radar. No one is talking about this and this is the creeping confiscation of lands and resources that are in the public domain. Okay? And Bunker calls these POPs, P-O-P-S, privately owned public spaces. Privately owned public spaces are becoming key fixtures in cities around the world. This privatization of public space creates a corporately controlled space governed by obscure private rules and policed by private security entities with minimal state control. A lack of transparency as the rules governing policing of these spaces are not always made public. Challenges free movement and liberties in these pseudo-public spaces that are reminiscent of feudal enclaves. This situation removes public spaces from the commons and places this territory in the hands of corporate or plutocratic elite 
rather than under state control. And this is something that's very, very insidious. Every state and every town, in America especially, has public spaces, and most countries are the same way. And these public spaces are increasingly being encroached on by private extra-sovereign actors who want to take them over for obvious reasons. They don't want people to be able to congregate. They don't want people to be able to freely associate. It's another way of enforcing doctrinal compliance. Doctrinal compliance must be enforced. And this is all part of the plan of the plutocratic insurgency. Now, these privately owned public spaces include small plazas, atriums, arcades, gardens, terraces, small parks, squares, micro parcels of land, and other indoor and outdoor spaces on private land open for public use through an easement or zoning concession. In some cases, developers are allowed to build taller or denser structures if they provided public access to public space. Over time, what happens is these property owners revert to sole private use by denying public access, limiting operating hours, or allowing adjacent tenants like cafes to usurp the space and violate public use provisions. In San Francisco, they're called uh, privately owned public spaces, POPOS, POPOS, emphasizing outdoor venues. And this is even going on in London. Uh, They say in in London, centuries of tradition are being erased as cash-strapped local councils sell off public squares and parks to corporations and foreign landholders. As The Guardian has observed, the public spaces of London, the collective assets of the city's citizens, are being sold to corporations that is privatized without explanation or apology. The process has been strategically engineered to seem necessary, benign, and even inconsequential. But behind this veil, the simple fact is this. The UK is in the midst of the largest sell-off of common space since the enclosures of the 17th and 18th century, and London is the epicenter of the fire sale. And it's It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out why this is happening. Again, it's about control. And the selling off of these public spaces further aggregates power and money within the hands of smaller and smaller numbers of extra-sovereign actors. It further solidifies the concentration of wealth. And it further dispossesses the public. And it's a truly insidious evil. And we're going to talk a little bit later... Uh, in this podcast about how history has corrected this overconcentration of wealth. How can reformers break up this concentration of wealth to prevent violent revolution? Because that's what happens. Uh, redistribution, redistribution of the wealth is going to happen one way or another. It's our decision whether we allow it to happen peacefully through reform or whether eventually it happens through violence as in the French or Russian revolutions. And it really is that serious because history tells us that over-concentrations of wealth are deeply destabilizing and societies cannot long endure this sort of arrangement without something um, catastrophic happening at some point. It's, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. Now, you know, Concerns about the outsourcing of accountability and lack of transparency complicate the public-private interaction on these quasi-public spaces. 
You know, the quest for maintaining public order has resulted in conflicting views over security and access, as historically public squares started to restrict access and install ubiquitous closed-circuit television monitoring on, pu- on private streets and in public places, with private security essentially acting in lieu of public police. And rising urban crime and instability have led to some have led some to consider privatizing public streets so that persons frequenting a, quote, public gathering space can be subject to searches and weapons screening. Such a proposal is currently being considered in the city of Kansas City that seeks to privatize portions of the public streets in the Westport Entertainment District. So, again, it's it's a combination of factors. And this is, again, just like every seizure and this is this is what this is it's a seizure it's a seizure of it's a seizure of property it's a seizure of rights and it's being done with the stated intention of it's for our own good it's for our own benefit they're trying to help us don't you understand it's for our, our own good just give up your freedom just give up your rights just give up your access to these public spaces and everything will be fine and the last comment that Bunker makes on this. He says, this contest is being fueled by two interconnected trends playing out in the global network of cities, criminal insurgencies and plutocratic insurgency. And so this is going to be a major, major issue in the years ahead. And, you know, he doesn't talk about this in his article, but I want to mention a few other words along these lines. And this is the related effort by corporate actors to seize public parks and the national parks, especially in the American West. And again, it's all being done under the guise of helping everyone. It's going to it's going to reduce the size of government. It's going to streamline everything. It's going to really make everything wonderful if we just allow all of these public parks to be managed by the states, which means incompetent state legislatures, which are in the pockets of the rich. They're going to immediately plunder those public lands, those national parks, which Theodore Roosevelt and others spent so much time and so much effort uh, creating for the, for, the, for the public good, for the legacy of everyone, of everyone in the country. And what you have is you have these insidious uh, extra-sovereign actors who want to get their hands on these on these uh, national parks because they know that there are timber concessions up for play. They know there are mineral rights, petroleum rights. They want on these lands. And if we allow that, then we're done because they're going to strip them clean. Just like if Roosevelt had just acquiesced in the robber barons uh, privatizing all the western lands, there would have been nothing left. They would have stripped everything clean. And it, it all would have been done in the name of our own good. It's to help you. It's it's what the people want. It's what everyone wants. And this is how it happens. This is how it happens. And let's let's talk a little bit now to show you how this has been a theme in history. This has been a theme in history, and I've talked about this in my translation of Salists, um, my most recently published book, which was released in June. Uh, it was a translation of Salists. Um, Conspiracy of Catiline and War of uh, War of Jugurtha, and I end the article from two days ago with a quote from Sallust, and I say, 
After riches began to be considered a substitute for honor, and when glory, power, and force followed as a consequence, virtue grew feeble, humble circumstances were held a disgrace, and innocence began to be regarded with malice. As wealth grew steadily, luxury and greed combined with arrogance took possession of the youth. They freely took what they wanted, consumed with reckless abandon, and placed scant value on their own possessions while coveting those of others. Shame, modesty, and all things human and divine were thought of as nothing. There was no sense of moderation. It is worth the effort when you examine the homes and villas constructed in the fashion of cities to see the temples of the gods made by our most pious ancestors. Truly, they adorned the homes of the gods with piety and their own homes with glory. Neither did they take anything away from their defeated enemies except their license to cause harm. In contrast, the modern individual, that most lazy of men, takes away, using the greatest treachery, everything from our allies that our strong, victorious ancestors left them. It is almost as if inflicting an injury were the same as the rightful exercise of power. Why should I relate these things? They are credible to no one except those who have seen them. Can mountains be cut through by groups of men, or can someone build on the sea? For them, their riches seem to have been a mockery. They might have made use of them reputably, yet they rushed to expend them indecently. The lust for sex, gluttonous eating, and other frivolities advanced in no small way. Men acted as women, and women uncovered their modesty. They combed land and sea to find culinary delicacies. They slept before their bodies needed sleep. They waited for neither hunger nor thirst, nor cold or exhaustion, but preempted all these things by their soft living. These vices incited the youth to wrongdoing once their family resources had run out. A mind imbued with evil habits is not easily kept free from wantonness, and ever more immoderately their minds had surrendered themselves to all varieties of material gain and profligacy. And this is what happens. This is how it happens. This is how it starts. And it ends with unrestricted, unrelenting concentrations of wealth. Well, you might say, what's the answer then? What is the answer? Well, I have some ideas on this. Those who know history know that there are antecedents for these problems that we face now. And there are societies that have solved these problems peacefully, favorably, and there are those who have not. In Athens, around Athens, Greece, around 594 BC, there was a huge disparity between the fortunes of the rich and the poor, and the city, according to Plutarch, seemed on the verge of a very dangerous situation. And there were great disturbances, disturbances that were arising there because of this massive imbalance and concentration of wealth between the rich and the poor. The poor found that their situation was getting worse every year. The government was in the hands of the corporate elites, or what in those days were corporate elites. Uh, In those days it was all about land and slaves and commerce. And the courts decided every issue against them. It was a rigged game where the rich were always favored. And so... And this is one of the miracles of ancient Greek history. The 
the Greek oligarchs chose Solon as a reformer to see if he could solve the problem. Solon, S-O-L-O-N. And he did. He did just that. He undertook he undertook major reforms to redistribute the wealth and to prevent a violent revolution. He devalued the currency, which thereby eased the debt burden. He, even though he, he himself was a creditor, he reduced personal debts. He ended the practice of debtors' prisons. He canceled arrears for property taxes and mortgage interest. He established a graduated income tax that made the rich pay at a rate 12 times that required for the poor, which is something interesting, by the way, because the, the, the plutocrats hardly pay any taxes at all. They have all sorts of accounting sleights of hand and ledger domain to, to exempt themselves from paying their fair share. They're not paying anything, really, if you really want to know the truth. If you read the books about this subject, they're not paying anything. It's a fantasy that they are paying their fair share. They are not. The plutocrats are not, believe me. And Solon also uh, reorganized the courts on a more popular basis. Now, the rich, of course, threw up a huge tantrum. They claimed that this was confiscation, that this was socialism, that this was this. And, and in some ways it was. It was confiscation. But this is what needed to happen. This is what happens when you have such massive disparities between rich and poor, you're going to have a lopsided society where Republican democracy cannot survive, cannot survive. It leads directly to dictatorships or chaos or worse, or both, or both. So we can see economic history in some ways. I'm not, I'm not saying this is the only feature of economic history, but one of the features of econo economic history is that wealth in societies tends to concentrate at the top, and it requires periodic means, by one way or another, to get that wealth back into circulation. Because when the haves have everything and the have-nots have nothing, then resentments generate, the system become, becomes a rigged game, and no one has a stake in the outcome. And this is something that really needs to be considered. This is what, something that really needs to be reflected needs to be reflected on and this is why I've spent some time on this with podcasts podcasts and writing so I hope you'll read the articles I hope you will think about this you may not agree with everything I say and that's fine you may not agree that's fine but at least you need to know that it's going on it needs to be part of the dialogue it needs to be part of the public consciousness so there it is that'll be all for now I'm Quintus Curtius. Good night.